wow, it's, it's nice that every week it seems like we're seeing a few more people come out. Uh, we appreciate so much everybody that's watching online. I know various reasons. We, we, some of us still don't quite feel safe enough. But uh, for you that are here, man, I'm so thrilled to see you and uh, very excited just to be back here with you. Well, we're in this series called Vulnerability, and uh, the message last week was vulnerability, love requires it. You can't love anyone or even anything without being vulnerable. One of the other things we discovered was this. The person that loves the most is the most vulnerable. And we took it a step further. Because God loves more than anyone else in existence, this of necessity means that God, the almighty creator, is in fact the most vulnerable person in the whole universe. Now, we usually don't think in terms of God being vulnerable. We think in terms of he's untouchable, indestructible. His will is going to be done. His kingdom is going to come. And all of that is true except for the part about vulnerable because his heart is tender, it's gentle. He feels with his people. In fact, God is the only one that can feel what you feel inside, what I feel inside. From the time that you came into existence, I came into existence, Christ our creator has such a capacity, he literally can feel. We, we try to express ourselves to people in hopes that they can understand how it feels to be us, but he feels it with us. So he's the most vulnerable. Now, today we're gonna look at the, the polar opposite of that, and that's that evil, it despises vulnerability. It hates weakness. It looks down on it. It disrespects it. It considers it the value to avoid at, at all costs. It's, it's all about might and power and brute force and control by any means possible. That's the ideal that is admired by evil. So we, we want to try to just kind of comprehend it. Then we're going to look at what happens when you and I, not even wanting to, are forced to confront this kind of overwhelming evil in our lives. Now we're going to go to an Old Testament portion of Scripture. But first I want to give you um, a few sayings and see if you can see the common thread between these. The end justifies the means. Just curious, how many have ever heard, heard that one before? Yeah, and, and it's used a lot for political thinking you know and it's a very very dangerous dangerous thing it's it's wrong the the end does not justify the means i did it because i can you got one of those people in your life why'd you do it i did it because i can how many you have one of those yeah survival of the fittest common term we know from you know darwin to the victor belongs the spoils. Might is right. Now, what they all have in common is a tremendous admiration for power, for control, for getting what you want, when you want it, for affecting everything and everyone but being unaffected by anyone or anything, to be completely invulnerable. It admires power. It admires invulnerability. It despises vulnerability, which means... This puts a person on the polar opposite side of the creator of all existence itself. So let's, let's try to understand it. We want to look at what's behind this uh, philosophy, this ideology, but, but also what are some ways that it, it expresses itself. The first point that we want to look at is this. This is the portion of scripture we're going to build, build this talk from. Uh, we're going way back in history to about 713 BC we're going to meet a king Hezekiah he's the 13th king of the southern kingdom in Israel Israel southern kingdom had 19 kings northern kingdom had 19 kings the northern kings were all evil none of them followed God's leading for the people 
in the southern kingdom though eight of the kings were good hezekiah is one of the good ones now a little bit of context just prior to the event that we're going to look at just 18 or eight years prior the king of Assyria the Assyrian empire swept into Israel and Israel had 12 tribes kind of like we have 50 states well they had 12 states if you want to look at it that way the Assyrians swept in they took away the 10 states they moved them to other lands that they had conquered and we call those today the, the 10 lost tribes of Israel they were never found again so Hezekiah knows this there's two tribes left um, Benjamin and Judah that's where Jerusalem was as well the capital so he knows that Israel had just been conquered and taken away into captivity eight years prior and now the Assyrian army is back and they're ready to conquer the two remaining tribes or two remaining states so that's all the background of this thing let's get into the text 2nd Kings 18 13 it says in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign King Sennacherib of Assyria marched up against all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them it goes on the king of Assyria sent his commanding general, the chief eunuch, and the chief advisor from Lachish to King Hezekiah in Jerusalem, along with a large army. They went up and arrived at Jerusalem. They went and they stood at the conduit of the upper pool, which is located on the road to the field where they wash in dry cloth. Just a pause here for a minute. This, this has been found. Archaeologists have found this tunnel that water was brought into the city. Um, Hezekiah knew the siege was coming and so he dammed up the spring of Gihon and brought the water into the city so that the troops would not have water but his people in the city would have water archaeologists have verified this anyhow verse 28 it says the chief advisor then stood there and he called out loudly in the Judahite language now the dialect this will make sense in a minute listen to the message of the great king the king of Assyria this is what the king says don't let Hezekiah mislead you for he is not able to rescue you from my hand have any of the gods of the nations actually rescued his land from the power of the king of Assyria so what had happened and I, you know, I couldn't read you in the entire passage because it was just a lot of material these guys came and they start speaking to the representatives of King Hezekiah but they're speaking loudly so that the people in the city on the city walls could hear and they were speaking in their language and literally Hezekiah's guy said don't 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 speak in our language we don't want the people to hear this and he said oh no they need to hear this too because your people are going to be the ones that are going to be I'm not trying to be crude here but it says this in the text they're going to be eating and drinking their own excrement this is the kind of thing that happened in sieges a siege could take place for two or three years they starved the people out until they surrendered cannibalism was not an unusual occurrence as well as literally people eating and drinking whatever they could so they're threatening the people at the same time they try to seduce the people they said however if you come out and you surrender if you surrender we'll, we'll give you all a great new place to live we're going to deport you to other places we've captured but it's going to be just like your land you're going to have your own house your own fig tree to eat under and all this kind of thing so on the one hand they're baiting them on the other hand they're threatening them and then they bring in the spiritual component they say and don't be thinking that your God is going to rescue you and don't be thinking that Hezekiah has the resources to rescue you have any of the other gods been able to rescue from the king of Assyria but then they even add to that they say and besides that do you think we would come up here and besiege your city unless the Lord your Lord told us to come and attack you and so he, he just 
attacks them from every side. There's threat, there's deception, there's seduction, there's uh, you know, the, kind of the bribery offer. Come with us and we'll give you a nice place to live. There's all these various ways. But what is it all about? It's about control. If, if the, the suede glove of seduction and bribery doesn't work, well, then there's the iron fist. We'll come in there, we'll conquer you, you'll eat your own you know, refuse and all this kind of thing. And this is the way power and control has worked throughout human history and it absolutely despises vulnerability it despises weakness it doesn't have any respect for it it respects pure power and control but why where where does this come from what is the origination of this kind of thought and you look through human history it's one conquer after another one empire after another it goes on and it goes on and it goes on where does it originate from well, it originates way back in eternity past. We can't exactly fix the point, but we know it started with one particular entity. He's called Lucifer. He's called Satan. He's called the slander. He's called the deceiver. He's called a lot of things. The dragon you'll, you'll hear later. But essentially, he was this evidently high-ranking angel that when he looked at his position and all that God had given him, he was not satisfied with it. He wanted more. He wasn't content. He coveted that which God had not given him, and he envisioned that God thought like he did. He evidently believed that God must have one heck of a ride to have everybody under your control, to have everybody looking to you, to have everybody afraid of you, that must be exhilarating. That, that must be the, the most wonderful experience that anyone could have. He, he read his own thoughts into God's character. Just curious, how many of you know some people that they accuse you of things that they're projecting their, their own thought process on you? You got any people like that in your life? It's a very frustrating thing, but, but it happens. Evidently, this is what happened way, way, way back in eternity past. Satan was deceived, thinking there was a better quality of life than just living in accordance with God's will, his creator's will, and he now uses that same bait on you and I, and it works. We, we have areas of our life, typically, where we think, you know what? I know what God wants me to do here. I know how he wants me to live. I know how he wants me to handle this particular portion of my life, but... <laughs> I think my life is going to be better if I do it my way, at least this time. And, and so this, this is not a foreign concept to us. Deception. Look at a verse from the New Testament, 1 John chapter 5. It says, we know that we belong to God, that these are followers of Christ this is written to, even though the whole world is under the rule of the evil one. So this concept that vulnerability is something to be despised and power is something to be valued, it all starts with, with satanic deception and now he uses the same thing on human beings, that if you can control everyone and everything, if you can affect everybody and everything but not be affected by anybody or anything, that's the, that's the best possible life that you could have. Not only deception, there's a desperation element to this behind this quest for power. Desperation is this. The being, the person that wants to have power and control over everyone and everything knows they don't and they can't. They know that there was a time in their life where they didn't exist. They know that they had no power over their birth. None of us have, a power, have power to determine when we're going to be born or where we're going to be born or to who we're going to be born. And none of us have power to determine when our life ends. Every human being knows there's a start and there's a stop in life. And we also know that we don't have any control of it. This renders us rather desperate. I'm here today. I don't know how long I'm going to be here, so I want to try to 
stay alive as long as I can. That's self-preservation. And then I also want to have as much pleasure and joy. We learn that there are some things that are more pleasurable than others. I want to have as much pleasure as I can as long as I can. This pushes us through life rather desperately. It's that bucket list mentality. Got to get it all in. You only go around once. You have to do it now. It's a reminder, though, that we're finite, that we're mortal, and this desperation makes certain individuals hate vulnerability the thought that they too can get sick that they too could die at any time in life and so it brings this this rage all to the surface in ecclesiastes solomon he vents this frustration of about mortality if you read the book of ecclesiastes it was written at a time when solomon was kind of backslidden from god and he just goes out on a pleasure quest he just experiments with everything that he can to see what brings him pleasure at the end of it all though he ends up saying it's all meaningless because everybody dies so what's it all about here's his expression in Ecclesiastes 2 17 he says so I came to hate life because everything done here under the sun is so troubling everything is meaningless like chasing the wind so the desperation cycle brings mortality to the the forefront with people and they hate it they hate that feeling and that's pretty close to this next one and it's that we try to just you know deflect the notion deflect the idea that we're mortal every conqueror every powerful person and you you can watch this cycle some of you are old enough you've watched it with certain celebrities certain athletes certain political people when they are at the top of their game when they're fully in stride you can sense it they are living in the moment and they are living as though nothing is ever going to change they're always going to be that person they're always going to have that power they're always going to have that skill or that beauty or whatever it is how many of you remember when Saddam Hussein was arrested and they literally dug him out of a hole in the ground and he was all disheveled and dirty how many how many of you remember seeing these pictures on the news you remember every other picture prior to that of this guy he was always standing proud and strong and he'd usually have a weapon you know with him and it was like he was going to freeze time and this virtue of power it it wants to do that it wants to just freeze time it hates the thought that they too are mortal that they too are fragile it tries to deflect any reminder of that and let me just share something with you we as Christians we as Christians bring a particularly particularly noxious smell into the lives of people that hate vulnerability because we remind them we remind them that not only are they vulnerable but they're they're accountable to a real creator listen to this verse it's an interesting one from second corinthians chapter 2 verse 15 paul is speaking he says our lives are a christ-like fragrance in other words our lives give off an influence a fragrance our lives are a christ-like fragrance rising up to god but this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are what perishing meaning those that have rejected christ those that want nothing to do with god and his will where they're they're affected differently by the influence of ordinary christians it goes on to explain to those who are perishing those who have rejected Christ want nothing to do with God's will to those who are perishing we are a you tell me what's it say have you ever had somebody tell you that you stink (laughs) it's not a fun thing to hear it's literally saying when you and I get around people that have made up their minds they, they want nothing to do with Christ or at least at that portion of their life they don't we emit we we give off a 
spiritual stench. They, they don't like being around us. They, they want to avoid us. We, we are obnoxious to them. How many of you have ever felt like someone just plain disliked you once they found out that you were a Christian, a Christ follower? How many have experienced that? Yeah, up to that point, if they didn't know, they might have felt very differently about you. And then all of a sudden, there's this relational shift. That's what this verse is saying. To those who are perishing, we're a dreadful smell. Why? We remind them that they too are vulnerable. And more, we remind them they are accountable to a real creator that they will answer to someday for how they have used this gift of life. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we're a life-giving perfume and who is adequate for such a task as this? Paul asks himself. So there's three things that feed into this despisal of vulnerability. There's deception, first of all, the thought that being in control, affecting everybody but being unaffected by anybody, that that's the ideal state of existence. There's also the desperation, and then there's finally this, just this desire to deflect, deflect the memory that we're not going to be in control and that we're not always going to be in the state that we're in. Now, I want to summarize a little bit more about kind of the way evil works and why it hates vulnerability. You see, evil wants to take. It, it, it's always looking to grab something from someone just because it can. It wants to take, it wants to use, and it wants to control. This is what evil always wants to do, and it'll use all kinds of means to do it. It can use seduction, it can use deception, it can use manipulation. That's the suede glove, but then it can also use intimidation. It can use threats, violence, actual violence. That's the iron fist. So evil wants to take and to use and control. Contrast that with love. Love wants to give instead of take. Love wants to serve instead of use people to serve them. And love wants to free people rather than control people. Listen, anytime you and I knowingly or unknowingly introduce duress or pressure into a relationship, we force a person to back off from being authentic. We, 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 are, we are poisoning the water of the relationship. Now, with children, it's a little bit different. You know, you, you have to, you know, at their smaller ages, you have to train them in various ways, and you do need some pressure and some duress and all that kind of thing. But I'm telling you, once you get into mature relationships, if you, if you are pushing, pressing, guilt-tripping, manipulating, conning, uh, putting pressure, using duress in that relationship, you are poisoning the waters, and you are making... The relationship, you're making it impossible for it to grow because you're, the person can't be authentic. You see, love always frees a person to speak their mind, to be who they are, to, to state their true feelings. It, it, it lets a person know that they are safe even if they are not agreed with. So here you can see the polar opposite in approach and why evil hates vulnerability. It's all about control. It's all about taking. It's all about using. Let me show you another part, portion of this. Evil seeks, and this is the suede glove, e evil seeks to manipulate, but then it also uses the iron fist, intimidate, threats, and then obligate. If it can just control you, let's say economically or some other way, it wants to do that. We all know people. We all know people that they have, they have a, a full toolbox of ways to control the people in their life. In fact, we have a whole family sometimes that revolve around one dysfunctional person. We call them dysfunctional families. And those dysfunctional people, they usually are very clever and they have tremendously strong wills and they have a, a large toolbox of methodology to control everyone and everything around them. Evil seeks to manipulate, intimidate, and obligate. 
Love, on the other hand, seeks to inspire instead of manipulate. It seeks to teach instead of intimidate. God just tells us the truth about himself and the truth about life. And then love also seeks to persuade. Now that you know the truth about God and the truth about life, I hope you'll do what is best for you. Do his will always. That's the difference in the styles and why evil hates vulnerability and to hate vulnerability is to hate God because God is the most vulnerable person in the universe because he's the most loving person in the universe and so this this attitude of the conqueror this admiration of power and the win and control and victory these are dangerous dangerous concepts that inevitably move a person's spirit and soul further and further away from God now I want to take the second part of this message and let's look at what is of a more practical importance and that's this what happens to you and I when we don't look for it we don't want it but we are suddenly confronted with overwhelming evil I mean you know we, we do our best to stay out of the, the line of fire of overwhelming evil but the truth is sometimes we can't we're just, we're just hit with it just like Hezekiah and the Israelites they had no choice when the, the huge Assyrian army shows up on their doorstep overwhelming evil now we're going to we're going to look at a portion of scripture in the same place let's go back to the narrative and we'll look at second kings once again and we'll pick up in chapter 19 now what we're looking for here and i'm going to share more specifically with you are, are four steps that you will see what you and i can do when we are confronted with overwhelming evil that that hates vulnerability of any sort when king hezekiah heard this meaning that the army was there ready to besiege the city when king hezekiah heard this he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth i don't know where to find sackcloth but we may we may want to find a sackcloth store for when we have a bad day he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth but look at what he did next he went where went where it's okay to the lord's temple we're going somewhere with this you're, you're, you're discovering some some principles here he went to the lord's temple he sent Eliakim, the palace supervisor, Shebna, the scribe, and the leading priest, clothed in sackcloth, to the prophet who? Isaiah. So he, he first, he goes to the temple. Then he sends his associates to go find Isaiah. Now, Isaiah at the time was God's prophet. God was speaking to Isaiah and through Isaiah. In other words, they didn't have a Bible then. They had probably the first five books of the Bible, and that's about all. The Bible was still being compiled. So when you wanted to get guidance from God, you had to go to a prophet. So that's what he does. Let's go on. Then Hezekiah, after they threatened verbally, they wrote a letter. And so Hezekiah takes the letter that the Assyrian king had written and he brings it into the temple and just lays it out before the Lord. Hezekiah took the letter from the messengers and he read it. Then Hezekiah went up to the Lord's temple and spread it out before the Lord. Then Hezekiah takes the next step. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. But first, he spreads this letter out before the Lord. Well, do you think the Lord didn't already know what was in it? well obviously he knew but he still did it it's important let's go on now he's praying so he has spread the letter out before the Lord now he's praying now O Lord our God rescue us from his power meaning the king of Assyria so that all the kingdoms of the earth now, now listen for Hezekiah's reason that he's asking God to rescue him so that all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you Lord are the only God now this, this, is, this is an insight that, and I'll unpack one of this for you that's, that's pretty rare remember Hezekiah didn't know anything about Christ Christ would not exist for another 700 nearly 800 years he didn't have a whole Bible like we have today 
he had this tremendous insight though about God's methodology he knew that God was not rescuing all of his people all the time but he knew that God would intervene in certain circumstances if it fit with God's overarching program to reveal himself to the world but to reveal himself in a way that does not freeze people's will or, or freeze freeze like an ice people's wills but that that freeze liberates people's wills to choose God if they want so anyway I want to break this down now well I'm, I'm sorry I should read the rest <laughs> Isaiah, son of Hamaz, sent this to Hezekiah. So now he's getting the answer for his prayer from uh, Isaiah the prophet. This is what the Lord God of Israel has said. I have heard your prayer concerning King Sennacherib of Assyria. I will shield this city and rescue it for the sake of my reputation and because of my promise to David. David was the second king of Israel uh, many years back. Uh, my servant, verse 35. That very night, the angel of the Lord went out and killed 185,000 uh, in the Assyrian camp when they got up early the next morning there were all the corpses now these armies in those days it, it could have literally been 500,000 man army at the doorstep they were enormous armies and 185,000 are killed that broke their spirit and they departed all right let's now try to for you and I when we experience overwhelming evil what are some principles that God gives to us wants us to take in and internalize so that when we are faced we have some principles that we can operate under let's look at the first one draw near to him we see Hezekiah goes to the temple draw near to God it means that I'm, I'm going to stop being distracted by all the things of normal life I'm going to I'm going to draw my attention very narrow very far, like a laser beam I'm going to draw near to God I'm going to seek his face in a way that on normal times and days I would not that's principle number one we have it reinforced in the New Testament James 4 8 it says draw near to God and what will he do he'll draw near to us this is an extraordinary promise I mean, how many of you will acknowledge that there's a lot of time you just kind of forget about God and neglect Him altogether? Can I see your hands? And yet, and yet, He says, any time, whether we deserve it or whether we don't deserve it, any time that we draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. This is a really beautiful, important promise. When we are confronting overwhelming evil, draw near to God. He, he's not going to say, oh, you come looking for help now. Where were you last week? <laughs> That's not, not the way He is. We're that way, but He's not that way. Principle number two, seek His guidance. What did He do? He went to Isaiah. Isaiah was the word, one that had the Word of God and gave forth the Word of God. We should seek God's guidance. Go to His Word. Go to people that are experienced and, and thoroughly saturated with His Word and it can maybe help us to understand maybe there's a principle in God's Word to guide us in how we should react in this confrontation with overwhelming evil. Isaiah 55, 6, it says, Seek the Lord while He may be found call on him while he is near seek God's guidance first we draw near to God then we seek his guidance principle number three pour out your heart to him remember Hezekiah goes into the temple and he takes the letter and he lays it out before the Lord and reads it it's it's just an expression that he's pouring out everything that's troubling him before God it's a very powerful, important exercise to, to learn to put into your normal life flow. L listen to how David uh, talks about it in Psalm 62, 8. He says, trust in him at all times, meaning the Lord, you people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is your shelter. 
sometimes, you, you and I know, sometimes when you've got something going on in your life and if you can just find one person, just one person that you think you can share what's going on in your life with, but they'll really listen to you. They'll be all there and really listen. They're not going to be able to do anything about your problem, but they're just going to be all there and listen. It makes a difference, does it not? We, we, we know it's not going to solve necessarily, but it does something. Well, here's God saying, learn to do this with me. Learn to pour out your heart. Tell, God's saying, tell me your feelings. Tell me your fears. Tell me your problems. Tell me your dreams. Tell me your ambitions. Learn to share your heart with me. This is a very powerful, transforming experience, and it should be normative for we that trust Christ and follow him. So we see Hezekiah doing this. Three important steps. Now, now here's what I'm trying to build up to. He does these three things before he prays. And then his prayer shows unusual insight, and I believe it's because of the three steps. But I want to show you, when you and I, when we do these three steps, we draw near to God, we, we seek his guidance, and then we pour out our hearts before him, it changes our perspective. It, it, it allows us to see things, the situation, ourselves, other people, very differently than we would see them uh, without these, these exercises. Let, let me show you a little silly illustration of it. Um, Let's go ahead and skip that verse and go right to the illustration. You can't see this very well, but in here you can see it's kind of like trees and a little walkway and some grassy stuff around. But it's the same thing on both sides. So it's basically someone as though they were looking through a monocular or, or a binocular. And you know that when you look with your naked eye at a, at a distance, you might see a field and there's trees and grass. But then you take a monocular or a binocular and you, you zoom in and you can literally see every blade. And suddenly things that were, follow me now on this, things that were real, they were, they were really there, but you couldn't see them before. They were just a blur. They weren't real to you until you used a monocular or a binocular, all right? Or a telescope or something like that. Your perspective was changed and your, your grasp of reality changed because your perspective was changed. Let me show you another picture. Does everybody know, anybody know what this is? cute little fella right very cute um, believe it or not all of us as we sit here today this guy is on our faces multiples of this guy are on our faces if you have not a binocular or a monocular or a telescope but a microscope and you look at your skin any, any human skin these things are all over us how many of you have ever, ever had a funny itch on your face can I see your hands now you know why <laughs> All right, I'm going to really creep you out. How many, ever, how many have ever had a blemish of some kind? Can I see your hands? Most of us have. Well, what can cause, not always, but what can cause a blemish is these fellows live, multiply, and die on our faces. Many, many, many of them. And when they die, their bowels release. And that can cause a blemish on your face. Aren't you glad you came to church today? How many are just thrilled? I'm, I, I'm, I'm so glad I came out and risked my life this morning to learn about that. Thank you, Randy. Thank you. <laughs> All right, but here's my real point. These things are real, but we're not bothered by them. But when we look through a microscope, we see realities. They were always real. They were always there. They were even affecting us, but we couldn't see it. Listen, when you draw near to God, and I draw near to God when we're confronting overwhelming evil that hates vulnerability, when we draw near to God, when we seek his guidance, 
when we pour out our hearts before him, I'm telling you, your perspective, my perspective changes. We see things outwardly differently. All the pieces start to come together and slow down. We see things often about ourselves. That's the microscopic view. I bet you I could, I could get many of you in here to say that, you know, I was praying about a certain situation with someone else, and next thing I know, God made me aware of some things about myself that I was not aware of before. And this is, this is why this is so powerful. These steps prepare us to pray. Now, now we're in a condition to ask intelligently, objectively, and not so subjective, subjectively, and we're more likely to, to get an answer that's understandable from, uh, from God for us. So Hezekiah then prays, but his prayer was for uh, in intervention. So he prays, God, you know, come and rescue us. We can't do anything about it. And he says, God, you know, so that the rest of the world will know that you are the Lord. Remember the Assyrians boasted that they had conquered all the other gods of the nations, which they had because they were false gods. So Hezekiah, this man that had probably only five books of the Bible, didn't have the rest of the Bible, didn't have Christ. He was insightful about God's methodology of working, that God sometimes will do extraordinary things when it fits into his plan, his overarching plan, to reach as many as are reachable by revealing himself in a way that does not freeze people's wills, but frees or liberates people's wills to hopefully come and trust in him. And so we, we see a passage in the book of James that kind of urges us to do the same thing it says is any any among you in trouble let them do what let them pray it's not rocket science and of course is, is anyone happy let them sing songs of praise unless you sound like me in which case you sing very soft so that no one else hears you because <laughs> then the others would not praise were they to hear you <laughs> so i want to close um with a little bit of an unusual but i hope effective um effective set of thoughts when you come to the last book of the bible and i don't urge you to study this last book of the bible unless you're really really familiar with the rest of the bible but you come to the book of revelation the book of revelation you have to know frankly you have to know the rest of the bible to be able to understand revelation well and it has a lot of symbols it had a lot a lot of pictures in it one of the symbols that you see well before i say that let me say this the book of Revelation concentrates mostly on the last three and a half years of human history before the return of Christ. The vast majority of the book of Revelation is dealing with only a three and a half year period. And the world is really going through a crisis. And that's where Revelation focuses in. Now, one of the things you see are a lot of symbolic individuals and characters. You, you see, for example, in Revelation 12, this dragon, this red dragon, it's the symbol of brute force and, and you're told exactly who the red dragon is it says it's Satan it's, it's the deceiver it's the slander so it's the devil but look at his symbol his symbol is a dragon a dragon is about power it's about control it's about feeding on everybody and everything everybody's your food if you're a dragon everybody is Satan's food he wants to devour us he wants to feed his own ego he wants to feel like God by controlling us and manipulating us and getting us to do his will he's the dragon it's about power and control then you meet some others in Revelation 13 you meet this one called the beast the beast is the last political ruler on the planet he is an iron-fisted dictator he is all about control he is all about controlling everyone and everything and not being affected by anyone or anything then you have a third figure he's called the false prophet now the false prophet he's all about 
economic coercion. It's, it's control, it's intimidation by economic coercion. He, he's the propagandist for the beast. But what he does is this, is he creates this economic system where no human being can buy or sell anymore unless they have a code, unless they have a mark. And so he's strangulating, he's bringing people under control because of economic coercion. These symbols, these last day symbols are going to be on society. They're all about control, they're all about power. They're trying to get everybody in the world to submit to the deceiver, Satan. Spiritual deception, you have politi political you know, power control, and then you have economic coercion. Now, on the other hand, in the book of Revelation, you have other symbols. In Revelation chapter 5, when the seals, the last seals of human destiny that are going to close out the last three and a half years of human history are about to be open, there's a scene in heaven in Revelation 5, 5, where John the apostle who's witnessing everything, he weeps and he weeps because nobody was found worthy to open the seals. And the thought is that evil will just go on forever. And then all of a sudden, one of the elders in heaven says, don't, don't weep, don't cry because the lion from the tribe of Judah, he's worthy, he's come. And, and so this is a messianic prophecy from Isaiah, or, or excuse me, from Genesis chapter 49. And so everybody's waiting with bated breath in heaven to see the lion, the almighty that's gonna open the seals. And then the next verse, the scene shifts, and what you see is not a lion, but you see it says a lamb that looked like it had been slain. It was Jesus. So at the end, all of heaven breaks out at this slain lamb. It's the almighty God, but he exists always governed by sacrificial love like a slain lamb. And all of heaven breaks out in praise and worship and says, you're worthy. You're the one that deserves the power. You deserve the glory. You're the one. And then there's another set of people talked about in Revelation. It's not just the lamb. It's the followers of the lamb. And it says in Revelation 12, 11 about the followers of the lamb. It says they overcame the beast. They, they didn't partake. They didn't cave in. They didn't give in. They didn't, they didn't even when it came to having their physical needs on the line. It says they overcame in three ways. It says they overcame by the blood of the lamb. In other words, they knew that God the Almighty is the sacrificial lover of their souls, that he's always for them and with them. It says they overcame by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They refused to back off their allegiance and devotion to Jesus. They refused to stop telling people the truth about Christ. And then it says, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives to shrinking back from death, which means many of them died, or will die, I should say, it's future tense, as martyrs. And these followers of the Lamb will do just like Jesus did. They will lay down their lives rather than succumb to the pressure and the duress and the control of evil. So this is how history ends, folks. Now here's my heart's desire, is that everyone that's sitting here today, that hears my voice, that understands anything I've said, that you, if you have not made your decision to put your trust in Christ and become his follower, a follower of the Lamb of God, who will rule and reign forever, who will end evil and all of its hideousness forever, finally, I'm hoping, I'm desiring that every one of us will be those that are the followers of the Lamb that overcome and it all starts with one decision that you and I maybe have already made or maybe will make today. So I want to close with the thought that if you are a follower of Christ, a follower of the Lamb, your future is a beautiful one. It is untouchable. Jesus has secured it for you and I. And he's going to give us the power and the wisdom and the courage that we need to go through whatever we have to go through in life, to face and confront evil, whatever form it takes in our life. But it all has to 
come together through our trust. It's to, like Kim had said earlier, to the degree that we trust God is to that degree that he can lead us, build us, develop us, and we can experience the full destiny that he intends for us. Let, let, let's close in prayer. Father, we, we are first of all grateful that your kingdom, it is going to come, and your will is going to be done, and nothing can stop it. We're so grateful that you've revealed yourself. You're not just the almighty and the holy one, but you're the holy one because you're the sacrificial lover. You're the vulnerable God, and we know that your power is the supreme power. Give your people wisdom. Give us courage. Inspire us and energize us. We ask it all today in Christ's name. Amen.